Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. People of color with intellectual disabilities are disproportionately sentenced to the death penalty. In 2002, the Supreme Court ruled that the execution of people with intellectual disabilities violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Nevertheless, people with intellectual disabilities, especially people of color, are still particularly vulnerable to wrongful capital murder convictions and death sentences. The Death Penalty Information Center reviewed more than 130 death row cases that were overturned because of intellectual disability. The study found that over 80% involved people of color. One case in point is that of Earl Washington, who received a stay of execution just days before his scheduled date and was later exonerated by DNA evidence. Washington, a black man, was sentenced to death in 1963. His intellectual disability made him vulnerable to police pressure to confess to a rape and murder he didn't commit. He spent 10 years on death row and seven more in prison before finally being released in January 2001. This week, we're highlighting two experiences of outside solidarity with prisoners. First, we share audio from last week's rally in Indianapolis for clemency, including a recorded statement by Leon Benson, a longtime imprisoned organizer, as well as a speech by his son Leon Blewett about the impact of growing up with an incarcerated parent. After that, we feature an interview with Danielle Chanzes, one of three people arrested on felony charges after a solidarity demo outside Florida State Prison last December. The protest was responding to prisoners demanding improved COVID safety measures amid miserable conditions and was also a memorial for Karen Smith, a dynamic abolitionist organizer and previous KiteLine contributor who passed away last year. Danielle took her charges to trial and won last week, and today she explains the importance of her fight in the context of a generalized drive to repress protests, both in Florida and across the U.S. Up first, we'll hear from Leon Benson, followed by his son, Leon Blewett. I am Leon Benson, and on behalf of myself and other men and women who are currently incarcerated in Indiana prisons and who have now been seeking immediate release from such inhumane imprisonment through the clemency process, sentence modification, or outright exoneration, I would like to thank each and every one of you for having the courage and empathy to show up here today at this historical event in support of our mass release. I say historical because it has been a very rare occurrence to witness a crowd gathering full of Indianapolis citizens in solidarity for human rights. Therefore, we are creating history today. You men and women out there are history creators. Your being here today acknowledges many great things. One, that we have common unity in humanity. Common unity in humanity. Common unity equates into community. 
community. Two, that you are invested in healing your community and its members. Three, that men and women like myself who are held behind the obscure steel and concrete walls of mass incarceration are no longer invisible. And four, and the most important, your presence here today acknowledges that we are all from the same human family. Thanks again for your gift of being present. The best ability is availability. Thank you for being available. And a special thanks to the Martin Luther King Center for being available for us here today to host this event. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the event. I'm here again, and I just want to let the participants, you know, really understand and not lose sight of the bigger picture here, which is not only men and women, such as Christopher Naeem Trotter or Aaron Isby Israel and myself and others who are seeking clemency and seeking relief from mass incarceration. It's about the effects that mass incarceration has on our community. See, when men and women are taken away from their community for decades, decades, and years and years, it takes away from the youth. That means that's another young lady or young man that's misguided in the streets by the horrors of drug addiction and drug dealing and gang banging, all of these at-risk activities. We sit here today right across the street from Tockerton Park where there's a back-to-school event that's happening. And I give all honors to Tamika Ketchums, the all-time WNBA, you know, scoring champion, all-star for what she's doing for the community. It's about the youth. So here we are nipping it in the bud. An ounce of prevention is better than a ton of cure. We want to make it that nobody has to go through this type of situation again. So let's nip it in the bud. You know, this is a situation on the aftermath. Let's start thinking about how can we prevent men and women from going to children, going to prison? How can we prevent at-risk kids from going down the pipeline from school to prison. These are the things to think about as a community. It's about the youth, and only truth will reach the youth. Just think about that. Hey, everybody. This is Leon Blewett, the son of Leon Benson. I just want to talk about how I was kind of, you know, growing up. And um, But first off, I want to thank everybody and each individual for coming. I very, very, very appreciate this because I know how much this means to me and my family. So everybody who came out, you know, supported us. You know, this is definitely a big thing for us right now. So I just want to tell everybody thank you. Um, but uh, here again, I'm Leon Blewett, the son of Leon Benson. And um, I just want to kind of talk about how, you know, it was like, you know, for me as a kid, you know, growing up, you know, just knowing my pops was a wrongfully convicted for a murder that he didn't do, you know, it, it was devastating, you know, 
it was kind of hard. It was very hard, actually, because I know how much a father figure means in a young man's life, especially an African-American. But every father is important in that kid's life. But growing up, a single mother household raised in the hood, like, it's hard growing up. And it's, it's very difficult because as a young man, you want somebody to, you know, you want somebody to give you advice and tell you what's wrong, from what's right. You want somebody to be able to look out for you and stand on you when you ain't got nobody else, you know. So a male figure definitely plays a good part. And, you know, my father always, always, always been a father to me and my sister. You know, he always, even though he was wrongly convicted for a murder he didn't do, you know, we, we stayed on top of our game. Like, my father always reached out to the schools. You know, he, he was a good father. He was a good father figure, man. You know, he reached out to the churches. He wrote everybody. He wrote teachers and, you know, everyone. Like, he's a good person. And it's just it's crazy because, you know, I've always been like, why me? And I know it's a lot of you guys out there that question the same thing. They don't have their fathers. Like, why do we have to suffer, you know? Growing up, like I said, I got a lot of family. And, you know, my cousins, they get to have their fathers, you know, they know who their father is. Their father get to take them to the park, raise them, you know. But me growing up, you know, it was, it was always a pride thing, the fact that I felt left out. I felt like I had no manhood. I felt like I had no one to show me support other than my mom, you know, my sisters. You know, it was definitely hard. And, you know, growing up in the state of Indiana where the system is how it is, and it's, it's crazy because, you know, dealing with this, we've been dealing with this for, like, come on now decades now like here it is going on 23 years that my pops has been wrongfully convicted for a murder he didn't do and it's crazy because we've been fighting it like we even had evidence we we had the woman that actually boyfriend did it we had her make a statement saying that it was her boyfriend that that's the one that was the murder of this crime that was her gun her gun that was stolen and i'm just not understanding but I just want to tell all the youth that's out there, y'all don't have to be like this. Y'all don't have to be a victim to this. You know, it, it's definitely a hard role growing up without a male figure. But me, I'd have been in prison. You know, I, I'd have been four years in prison since I was 18. Just growing up because I'm I'm hanging around the wrong crowd. You know, I, I don't want that to be to nobody, none of you guys. Growing up without a father is definitely a big role because maybe if I would have had the right guidance in my life, then maybe I could have took a better route. You know, I don't sit up here and blame anybody for the choices I did and made, but I just want to know everybody to understand that the streets is not an option. Get your education. Go to school, guys. And I know it's hard in the black community not having a father because that's definitely, it's definitely hard, you know. Who, what child wants to grow up not knowing who his father is, having to always go see him from a prison. And on top of that, y'all, I just, I just ask that everybody, you know, that came here, I just want to let y'all know that I definitely appreciate this because this is a big meaning to us, you know, just not even with my father, but anyone who has a innocent bystander, an innocent person who's fell victim to the system. You know, this is for everyone. So not just my pops, Leon Benson, but Leon Benson definitely came a long way, man, and I'm thankful 
and I'm happy, and I wish justice onto my pops freely on Benson. Truth never got, dies, y'all. TND. I thank y'all. Up next, we have Danielle Chanzas, who tells her story about her December arrest during a protest and her recent Florida trial. Here she is. My name is Danielle, and I am a community organizer based in North Central Florida. And I organize with Florida Prisoner Solidarity, doing direct support to individuals incarcerated in the Florida Department of Corrections. In Florida Department of Corrections, it honestly, it's one of the worst places to be incarcerated. I know I'm sure you know, anybody who does this work, any prison is a horrible place to be incarcerated, but it is really a whole different beast in the South. Um, in terms of conditions where the Florida Departments of Corrections is, especially through COVID, we've had really bad reports, you know, from people inside the prisons, individuals not having masks for months, um, not having soap, being denied showers, um, a lot of retaliation against those who are incarcerated by prison guards um, being denied meal trays, beaten while in handcuffs, being gassed. I mean, anything that you could possibly think of that is the worst of the worst that's happening in Florida. I actually even was reading an article today about an FBI investigation where two Klansmen who worked at the Florida Department of Corrections had plotted to murder a former inmate. Florida Prisoner Solidarity was formerly known as Gainesville IWOC, which is Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which is part of the um, IWW, so kind of union organizing and such, um, but we disaffiliated from IWOC a little over a year ago to become Florida Prisoner Solidarity, and, you know, the biggest thing that we do is just communicate to people on the inside. When individuals are incarcerated, you know, they're disappeared from society, out of sight, out of mind, and one of the biggest things that I always carry with me when I try to at least empathize you know, with other people or try to get them to understand like why I'm an abolitionist and stuff and why it's important, you know, to consider these individuals who are incarcerated is prison is supposed to be a place that people go to as punishment. Like your punishment is that you're being removed from society. I don't agree with that period, but that's what in theory it's supposed to be. Instead, the way our prison system functions, it is a place that people go to to be punished. Um, it's one of the most vile, wretched places. And so, you know, you have individuals, doesn't really matter what their charges are, but they don't deserve to be dehumanized. You know, there are people who, you know, have petty theft charges that end up with a death sentence because they're, you know, so poorly mistreated, their medical conditions aren't acknowledged, um, you know, they weren't kept safe from COVID, this and that. And so the work of Florida Prisoner Solidarity is to communicate with individuals on the inside and understand what's going on and be able to uplift those voices because if not, their concerns, you know, if they, if they write something up, they're retaliated against or their grievances are thrown in the trash. But when we organize um, to uplift the concerns of the, those incarcerated, we actually definitely get some movement. So we organize phone zaps and have people call into the wardens um, and do just a bunch of work to uplift the concerns of those who we are in contact with and um, who are incarcerated in Department of Corrections. It was kind of a twofold situation because Florida State Prison is hands down the worst prison in the state. Uh, we always say that because that is where they have death row. That is where they execute people in our state. It all happens in Rayford at the Florida State Prison. We have some comrades on the inside there that are incarcerated who have faced a ton of retaliation, who you know, are constantly 
under attack from the system itself, uh, one of them being our comrade Heru. He had been given reports, again, of individuals who are incarcerated being gassed, being denied meal trays, not having proper sanitation. And so we were already wanting to bring attention to that. And then on top of that, our dear friend, the late, great Karen Smith, who was a badass, radical prison abolitionist organizer for decades, died tragically in a car accident. And so Karen, you know, she poured her lifeblood into prison abolition organizing. And so we felt like the best way we could honor her legacy was to go out to DOC and raise hell. So we are raising hell in memory of Karen and also in solidarity with our comrades on the inside. So on December 6th, 2020, it was a Sunday, we decided that we were going to go out to the Florida State Prison and raise hell in honor of our friend, Karen Smith, who was an amazing prison abolitionist and also in solidarity with some of our comrades who are incarcerated inside of Florida State Prison. It started out as a noise demonstration, also direct action took place as well. And so we were out there, we were making a lot of noise. And, you know, the reason that we do those noise demos is really just to allow um, individuals to know that we're there and that we care. It seems really kind of trivial, but again, when people are sent off to these prisons, they're disappeared. Um, they're dehumanized and degraded every single day. And they really try to institutionalize individuals um, and let them think that there's nobody out there that cares about them. So when we're out there and we're making noise, we're just letting them know, hey, there are people out here who care about you and we are fighting for you. You know, don't, don't give up. Um, you, you're some, you are somebody um, in spite of what the system wants people to think. So we were out there making a ton of noise. Eventually all of the cars um, that were there pulled over to the side. Um, and then we were out in the um, grass field area of where the prison entrance is and we had some pre-recorded messages from incarcerated individuals on the inside we also played a recording of a speech that Karen had gave prior to her death and yeah we were just you know out there like I said raising hell telling the cops to f off and you know that this is a horrible system that they uphold and such and we were out there honestly for a good while close to probably 30 minutes and then the police really got tired of our presence and so they started to move in on us I was you know fueled by a lot of rage about what goes on in the prison and also grieving for my dear friend Karen and I just let them have it I just told all the cops in a very not nice way like we're gonna be back here we're gonna keep protesting and that went on for a solid minute or so it was much more intense than how I just relayed it. And they didn't like what I had to say, so they arrested me. I was very clearly, um, in my opinion, arrested for the words that I was saying, not because I was actually committing any crimes. Then one of my co-defendants was also arrested when he really, he was standing in front of his car and he just said to the officer, he said, really, you're gonna defend these guys? I'm talking about like you're taking up for DOC. And the officer responded to him and said, oh, you wanna talk? come here and arrested my co-defendant Paniyoti as well and then at some point when I was in the car already in cuffs they arrested another individual who was at the protest and his name was Dami Farrell and I guess it was a very similar situation he was just trying to see what was going on and the police tackled him um, and so all three of us got the exact same charges we were charged with misdemeanor trespass resisting an officer without violence 
And then they also gave us a felony charge of criminal mischief damage to property amounting to over $1,000. There was a direct action that took place. Red paint was spilled out on the roadway. A spray painted Anarchy A was put on the archway of the prison and a banner was hung up. But again, I didn't see any of that. I wasn't present for it. So they wanted to say that that was criminal mischief, damage to property over $1,000, even though they had no probable cause that any of the three of us were the ones who actually committed that alleged crime. Even when we went to first appearances the next morning, they said that there was no probable cause. The judge said there was no probable cause. However, because we're in a really corrupt rural county, we still got bonds set on that felony charge. And really what it comes down to is they gave us that felony charge because if we would have just had the two misdemeanor charges, we would have been able to bond out each for a thousand dollars cash bond. But because they gave us the felony charge, they had to keep us overnight to first appear us. So instead of paying a thousand dollar cash bond, we ended up each having a $35,000 bond because they gave us $15,000 on the trespassing, $10,000 on the resisting without violence, and $10,000 on the felony criminal mischief that they said there was no probable cause for, but they still set a bond for it. So we went into jury selection and there was many, many Department of Corrections employees that were actually part of the jury pool. They ended up dismissing any of the corrections officers who were employed by Florida State Prison. But if you understand where Florida State Prison is positionally, there's, I think, three or four prisons all right next to each other. It's Florida State Prison, New River Correctional, Union Correctional. They're all right next to each other. So they excused anybody who was an employee of Florida State Prison. However, there was all these other correctional officers that worked at these other prisons that were still part of the jury pool. And actually, ultimately, I ended up with a former corrections officer on my jury, and my alternate juror was a former warden of the prison. <laughs> so it was admittedly a bit nerve-wracking because, you know, just like the judge didn't seem to care for my language, I felt very confident that the these jurors, especially the former corrections officers, they weren't going to care to hear me talk that I guess is the best way to put it. Other things, you know, that kind of just happened during trial, which was a little bit outrageous, was just the judge in general. He, anytime my attorney objected to stuff, he was like very visibly frustrated and it seemed pretty inappropriate is the best way to put it. He was making statements um, and, and just his behavior, like his nonverbal communication seemed to be very you know, against the defense. And it's something that the jury could see. And it felt inappropriate because a judge is supposed to be somebody who's impartial. Um, and he was very clearly not impartial throughout this entire trial. The judge repeatedly on the day of Tuesday, which was the first day of trial, was telling all of the jurors, it doesn't matter, you know, what you might have heard, all of the evidence that comes into this courtroom comes in from the stand right here. And yet the judge didn't follow his own instructions to the jury and, you know, use that against us and ruling against our judgment of acquittal. But again, we kind of knew what we had going into this with this judge that we had. And then on Wednesday, we, the defense, got to present our argument. And so um, my comrade, colleague, um, Kimber Tuff, testified first because she was the individual who was next to me carrying the speaker. Um, Pani Odi, who was my co-defendant, got to testify. And then 
I actually ended up taking the stand in my own trial, which is not super common, but I felt like I needed to let the jury hear from me. Um, and so we ended up doing all of that. We did our closing arguments and then the jury deliberated. And because of the way trial went, because of the judge's behavior in a lot of instances, even I will say the prosecutor in closing, you know, he really just tried to taint this jury against me again because of the content of my speech. He did his closing and then my attorney did his closing and then the prosecutor gets to come back and rebut. He opened his rebut, he looked the jury dead in their face and said, you're all cheaters. That is what the defendant said. And my attorney objected and was like, this is inflammatory. Like we've already seen the videos, but they really wanted to nail home the things that I was saying. I believe in the hopes that the jury would convict because they didn't like the content of my speech. And so the jury was out for probably about an hour and a half. So when the jury came in, you know, my heart started racing and my attorney just looked at me and he said, Danielle, whatever it is, just, you know, poker face. He put his hand on my shoulder and the jury came in. The judge looked at the verdict form and said, okay, this looks good and handed it to the clerk and the clerk read it out loud. Um, and it was something to the effect of we, the jury, you know, after carefully considering the evidence, find the defendant not guilty. And I remember I heard the not guilty and I thought, oh my God, not guilty? Really? Like, wow, I did it. Okay. Okay. And then they were reading the second charge, you know, about the resisting an officer without violence. And they said, not guilty again. And I kept the poker face on just like my attorney told me to, but I was internally smiling from ear to ear. Like I really couldn't believe it. I really thought that I was going to go to jail last week. And the fact that I was not convicted, it was, it was amazing. Ron DeSantis put out this legislation. It was already in drafting in October in response to all the Black Lives Matter protests that happened last year post George Floyd. And the bill puts a lot of like really kind of harsh measures in place for people who choose to protest. It makes it illegal to, you know, block highways, which is a tactic that's often used by Black Lives Matter movement. It gives, you know, like, for example, if you're charged with battery on an officer during what they're classifying as a riot, which the law itself basically says if anything takes place and it's over nine people, they could classify it as a riot. <laughs> and so if that happens, and let's say you're charged with battery on an officer, it's basically like a minimum mandatory six month hold in the jail. There's just a whole bunch of outrageous stuff in this law. Let's say we do shut down a highway. If somebody who is driving a vehicle feels, allegedly feels unsafe, they can plow into protesters and kill them and they would be granted immunity. So this is just some stuff that's happening in the state of Florida. And so this protest that we did happened before this law actually took effect in the state of Florida, but it was already in the process of happening in the state of Florida. And so, you know, while the state, again, is trying to suppress free speech and trying to suppress our ability to assemble and speak out against injustice, it definitely felt like just a huge win, you know, that you might not like my words, but it's my right to say them and you can't arrest me for it. There was just a whole bunch of nonsense. It felt like this was corrupt from the very beginning. We were arrested, again, for the content of our speech and not our actions. They tried to put a trumped up felony charge on all three of us. 
the first appearance judge, you know, I was in the jail talking to my mom and she was so worried. And I have been doing court support for a long time. And I was like, mom, I'm going to get ROR. I have no criminal histories, like a petty charge. It's no problem. And ROR for anybody who doesn't know is a release on recognizance. And when they gave me this $35,000 bond, I was like, this is outrageous. How is this possible? And I got this crazy bond. Like I said, every step of the way, it seemed to be something. We got these crazy bonds. We got these crazy plea offers, the $17,000 restitution orders. The first judge is the son of the warden. It just felt like at every turn, something was working against us. But not to be corny, justice prevailed. This has been KiteLine. Thanks to everyone who contributed to the show. We'll have links to some of our previous coverage with Leon Benson on our website, kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.